Uh, but we begin this morning, don't we, with a new series. This is exciting for me as uh, we begin another series. This is number three already in this short period of time. Um, I said to someone, I can't remember, uh, we're two books down, only 64 to go, you know. Uh, if we're going the way we're going, we're going to be finished soon, you know. No, those are two small books, so we've got a lot to do, a lot to get to. But this one here really just takes us on a journey right through the Easter week. And we begin here with a triumphal entry. And we're actually going to turn, although this is seen in all four of the Gospels, we're going to look at it in Luke. Okay, so we're going to turn to Luke uh, chapter 19, uh, verse 28 all the way through to verse 40. Uh, this is where we're going to look at it. However, as we go through, I will be adding uh, the, the truths from the other three accounts as we, as we try and paint this picture this morning. So Luke 19 and verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Then you should say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, Lord, the uh, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray, shall we, as we begin this series together. Lord, we realize as we come to uh, begin this new series together, as we begin to look at this uh, entry of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read the words uh, on these pages, we... We know and are very conscious that they are your living words and that we have much to learn from them. But this morning, our prayer is that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be seen, that he would be magnified, and that our affections for him will be greater than any day previous to this one. So Lord, may that be the case, we pray. Answer our prayers, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Jewish Passover week had begun. Jerusalem, its population had swelled. Some say more than six times what it was. They say that Jerusalem's population was something between 
20 and 30,000. So you can work out the mass there, with it being six times the size. And the reason being is that pilgrims traveled to this city. Uh, They filled every room. Every space on every hillside would have been taken with those who would have encamped for this week of Passover. Uh, And it would have been inhabited by Jews who would have traveled from across the known world. The Passover meal, as we know of it, uh, was eaten in remembrance of God passing over the homes uh, that we see back in Egypt, back in uh, the Old Testament, uh, of those who had sacrificed the lamb and sprinkled its blood on the doorposts and the mantles. And the reason they did that is because Moses had prophesied and Aaron had prophesied that there was an angel of death who was coming. So anyone who hadn't done this, and if you had sprinkled this blood on the doorposts and, and the, the mantle, then he would, this angel, pass over and he would not uh, enter and cause destruction on your family, on the firstborn. Therefore, the theme of part the Passover really was remembering the gift of salvation in the Exodus when God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And that Passover lamb was to be perfect. It was to be perfect and flawless and without blemish. It was to have no bones broken. No bones broken. Uh, And those who were covered by the blood of the lamb were saved. And here, thousands of years later, as we read this account... As we begin this week of Passover, we see tens, according to scholars, tens of thousands of lambs who were thought to be slaughtered as again they celebrated their historic freedom from slavery. But as as this celebration begins, and as they sacrificed thousands of lambs, The spotless Lamb of God. The perfect, flawless Lamb without blemish was about to descend the Mount of Olives. You see this picture? Jerusalem swirled with people coming to... uh, Celebrate that Passover feast and sacrifice lambs. But actually the lamb was just about to enter. And so my desire for us this morning is that we see this king in all of his glory. That's my aim this morning. Firstly, we look at this. This is my first point in this new series. No greater in this sermon, No Greater King, is this, that there was foreknowledge and fulfillment. Foreknowledge and fulfillment. Verses 28 to 35, we see this. And as Jesus and his disciples make their way into Jerusalem, they come to a stop near Bethphage and Bethany. Verse 29, when they drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And Jesus has a task here for them. 
We're not sure who these two disciples are. It doesn't tell us. Luke doesn't tell us. Neither do the other uh, uh, gospels or gospel writers. But some suggest it could have been Peter and John. Why do they suggest that? Well, shortly they would be sent, wouldn't they, to prepare the Passover feast. But we do not know that for sure. But what we can be sure of is this, is that these instructions were utterly wrapped up in the foreknowledge of Jesus. And what I mean by that is that Luke, uh, although he doesn't make clear the village where they go, uh, what he does make clear is that there is a colt and it is tied up. Should we read that together? Verse 30. Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied. Now, that foreknowledge, some say, well, maybe he had visited this village before and he just knew that there was a, a, a colt and a donkey that always sat there. Maybe. But the reality is as we journey through this Easter week, we see his foreknowledge played out time and time and time and time again. So we know that he knew that they were there. This wasn't a prearranged collection of this cult from its owner. And that's not what was happening here. He knew it was there. Secondly, what we do know is that this cult had never been sat on. Luke tells us that. A little uh, interesting uh, sort of insight from Luke here in verse 30 as well. It says, which no one has ever yet sat and then thirdly, what we know is that although Jesus uses the, the word if in verse 31, uh, he prepares his disciples to give an answer, which is interesting, isn't it? It says, you know, if you meet someone. Well, if he knew the, if he knew the cult was there, surely he knew that they were obviously going to meet someone as well. And they were going to have to give a reason for them taking this cult. Well, yes, absolutely. And he says, just to tell them, that the Lord has need of it. So they went. They went down to this village, wherever that may have been, Bethphage or Bethany. We're not sure. It wasn't Jerusalem, obviously, because that's a city. It was at another village somewhere else. They found it just as Jesus told them. Funny enough, that he, as he had said, uh, where they would be and, and as they would find them, that is exactly what they saw. And they were asked a question. And they gave an answer. They assured the owners that this wasn't being stolen. I'm sure if this was your colt and your donkey. Um, you would probably ask them questions pretty firmly. Because you thought maybe they were just going to steal it. Imagine them just trying to untie this donkey and take it away with its colt. And they reassured the owners that. And they said the Lord needs it. But actually what I want us to see here is this. That actually that translation, the Lord needs it or has need of it, is better translated like this. Its Lord has need of it. Its Lord has need of it. And with this being the reality for the cult, that Jesus was the Lord of the cult, Jesus, therefore, has a greater right of the cult than its very owner. Isn't that so true? After all, he created that thing, that beast of burden. 
But this colt had never been ridden. Yes, and we've said probably year on year, and I've heard it so, so many times, and this is so true, that because of Christ's sovereign power over that colt, he was able to bring an unridden colt under control. And we know that. But there is so much more on display for us to see uh, with regard to Christ and this cult. And the first thing is this. In ancient times, uh, it was the king's prerogative, or their right and their privilege, to commandeer a beast of burden. So just picture that in a moment. In the ancient times, it was the, the joy and the responsibility and the right of a king to commandeer a beast of burden. That was, that was what they did in the ancient times. That is what uh, happened. And secondly, that beast uh, being unridden is therefore very much appropriate for a king. You know, the reality is that a king's horse is only to be ridden by the king himself and no one else. So as we think about those two things, and we think now into this picture, as we uh, try and imagine this moment as these disciples go down and take this unridden colt and its uh, donkey and its mother to bring back to Jesus, it was exactly the thing that Jesus needed to prove his, his kingly status. But there's one more thing that points to Jesus' kingly status. And it's in verse 35. It says, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Did you notice that? You know, in Matthew and in Mark, Jesus sat on the colt. And that's very true. These are not contradictions, they're both the same thing. However, in Luke, Luke gives us a subtle element at the beginning of this triumphal procession. And he says, they set Jesus on it. Here we, we have a suggestion here uh, of enthronement. Quite amazing, this picture, isn't it? As Jesus is placed on the beast of burden by the crowd, you know, laying down their cloaks on the road and the palm branches, as we read in the other Gospels, this king of kings now journeys down the road into Jerusalem. They have enthroned him on this colt who was prepared for him. And all of this together attested to Jesus' messianic status. But there was no greater indication that Jesus is the king than this. That in Zechariah 9 and 9. And I'm just going to read it to you. You can turn there if you want to. Zechariah 9 and 9 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey, 500 years before. 500 years before, 
the prophet prophesied that this is how Jesus would arrive to Jerusalem. That all of this would take place and all of this will be fulfilled. He would not only know where this donkey was and he would send his disciples and they would find it just as he had told them. But actually he would be the fulfillment of a 500 year old prophet. Well, Bruner observes this, a, common, a commentator, and he says this, and just listen to these words. He said, the lowly Lord, the human God, Emmanuel, the true God with us in a truly human way, at our level, God on a donkey. God on a donkey. So we see the foreknowledge of Christ. We see the, the fulfillment of Christ as he as he takes and as he, as he sits on this donkey and as he proceeds into Jerusalem. But now we see understanding and misunderstanding. We see understanding and misunderstanding. In verses 36 through 40, this is what we see. Let's just read those words, shall we? Verse 36. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, and disciples that means followers, not necessarily just uh, his personal disciples, but those who would follow. Well, the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Can you imagine this? This moment. You know, hear their praises as I repeat them here just now. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Or from the other accounts that we see. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Wasn't it wonderful? These loudly spoken praises giving praise to the king on the colt. They understand so much of this king. They know their Old Testament scripture and have been waiting for this king. Their desire is Hosanna, which means save, please, or save me. Isn't it wonderful that they knew he was coming to save? Well, they didn't. They didn't. The, the crowd... Yes, they knew. And yes, he was coming to save. But not from that which they wanted saved from. They praised him in in all these ways. But they did not praise him in the right manner. They did not understand what they were saying. And what they were doing. Turn to John 12. Turn to John 12, 18. Just for a moment. I want to paint this picture. So we all see this this morning. This is so important. John chapter 12 and 18. It says this. The reason why the crowd went to meet him. Was that they heard he had done this sign. You say what sign? 
Well, look at the previous verse, verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Okay, well, look back uh, to verse 37 of Luke 19. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for or because all the mighty works they had seen. They rejoiced and praised because of all they had seen. The crowd were present only because of what their eye had seen. Lazarus. Raised from the dead the day before. Many men and women and children healed of disease. The lame made to walk. The blind to see. The feeding of the 5,000. From just five loaves and two fish. The walking on the water. The turning the water into wine. And now he's sitting on a colt that he has never sat on before. What do we see here? Well, a multitude who is seeing... But not perceiving. Hearing. But not understanding. A people who are here with Jesus. Not only for the welfare of their spiritual lives. Actually that wasn't even their concern. But for the benefit of their own selfish desires. Their joy was ignited by self-centered motives. They saw what this Jesus could do. They saw what he could do. And they cried out, Hosanna, save me. Well, then the question is, well, what do they want saved from? Well, from physical persecution, from physical situations, from the oppression of Rome. You know, this was the popular expectation of this crowd. Is that Jesus would do this. That, there, that he would come and he would help. And he would, he would reign. And these shouts of admiration for Christ were motivated by common politics. By common politics. The palm branches that we see and read of and we've heard of many years. years on, year on year when we look at this Palm Sunday story. They were simply a political symbol. Stating their desire for a nation of independence. Jesus was not the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies to conquer a physical battle. No. He was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy for a much greater task. A spiritual battle. And Wenzel, in a a commentary he wrote, he said this, The people were right to expect a great leader who would deliver them from bondage, but this would not be a physical exodus, but a spiritual one. Just as they looked back and as they they celebrated at the beginning of this week, all that God had done as he he saved them, as uh, that salvation that he he brought on them, bringing them out of exodus, their, their forefathers. They thought now this king who has been prophesied for hundreds of years has now come. And he could be, he will be our new king. He will overthrow overthrow Rome 
in their uh, leadership in Jerusalem. He will, with his voice, put Pilate uh, to perish. Yet the crowd cried out in empty praise. And Jesus, while they did that, had a conversation with the Pharisees. Funny, isn't it, how this is here, right at the end, uh, in verse 39 and 40. And this is their conversation. He said, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said to them, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. Well, what is he saying? He said, well, if the crowd wasn't crying out, creation would. If you stop this crowd from, from crying out in praise, creation itself would cry out. Christ will receive what is due to him. If not these, then these stones will get the joy. And so finally we see mercy and judgment. We didn't read these verses because I sort of just wanted this to be a little bit of a surprise. You probably read it. But I just wanted this to be like an add-on at the end because I think this brings us and paints us a full picture. In verses 41 through 44, we see mercy and judgment. Let's read these verses and then we'll briefly look at them uh, this morning. It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children without you and children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus, surrounded by those who were there for personal and political gain and gazing upon a city with the same expectations in mind he weeps over them here's a picture of where he may have been or what he may have seen as he walks down with this great crowd around him and he looks over this wonderful city those who he loves and he has loved and has a covenant with he cries over them He weeps for them, for their spiritual state. And in verse 42, Jesus weeps because he desired that they would uh, know what would bring true peace, divine peace, that shalom of God. Not the peace the world offers, because that is no peace at all. But the peace that passes all understanding, which comes only from the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, the one who was walking down into the city. Yet again, the crowds are non understanding. And having said this, having said all that I've said, and now as we read these verses, we must be very careful to do uh, or not do one thing. And it is this that we must not uh, see these tears of. Jesus as evidence that he has failed. 
please understand this as I, as I say these words. These tears are not evidence that he has failed. He, that, that, that these tears would not deny his sovereignty. We could think that Jesus' plans for the people did not come to pass, that they were too resistant. Even after all they had seen and heard that Jesus has failed here. No, that is not the case. This rejection and this persecution to come is not a sign of failure, but is a sign of fulfillment. In Luke 18, 31 to 33, we see just that. We're going to look at this in a moment around the table. As Jesus tells his disciples what is going to happen, the betrayal, the mocking, the spit, the shame, the murder, and so much more. This was all planned. This was all part of the purpose. The resistance, the rejection, unbelief and hostility were not a surprise for Jesus. The lack of, under, the lack, lack of understanding on the part of the crowd is not a result of ignorance or even immorality. Jeez, at Jerusalem, you know, their problem is not that it will not repent but that it has been so rebellious that it is unable to repent. Not only did they not know the true peace, but they did not recognize the time of God's coming. Verse 44. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, they did not know the time of their salvation. Jesus, at this point, utters a judgment over the city. Verses 43 and 44. And in one generation, this city and all of its inhabitants will be ruined. Their own fate is hidden from their rebellious eyes. Yet the hard-hearted, rebellious crowd will be God's agents throughout this Passion Week in the fulfillment of God's purpose and plan in the crucifixion of his son. Jesus, he will be crucified at the hands of this very crowd. In one or in a few days' time, this crowd will go from Hosanna, from those cries to crucify him. And now we see why, right? We see this hard-hearted people were understanding in some ways, but misunderstood the big picture, the story, and the fulfillment. So as we finish this morning, I finish uh, with my personal overview of my time in the study. I don't really know how to finish, but rather just to read this to you, um, and I hope that this will be helpful in trying to bring what we've seen today into into our lives into how does this apply for us now and here's here's what I wrote we're living in a moment in history where our own country is looking for independence like those 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem we look for peace we look for security we look for stability we look for prosperity we look to please the desires of our sinful nature Yet we look within. 
to our own sin and sinful nature and to sinful man for answers. But on a colt came a king, a king like no other, a king who still reigns, omniscient, sovereign, merciful, mighty, righteous, and just, just, the fulfillment of old, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And we see him right here. Yet we know not his face. We hear him, yet we know not his voice. We follow him, yet we know not whom we follow. Today is the day we can truly know him. Today is the day where true peace can be found. Today is the day Christ is passing by. Today is the day of salvation. Let us all, every single one of us, born again, unborn, unregenerate sinner, for the first time, or afresh this morning, let us turn to him, because there is no greater king.